Well, good morning, church. It is great to be able to bring the message with you this morning. And before we get too far into the sermon, I'm sliding over all these papers here. I've got a fun question for you. Before I give you the question, I think I heard an uh-oh over there. <laughs> Before I give you the question, I'll give you a hint. You can answer me with two letters. All right. Who owns the trademark to this word? O-H. There we go. Ohio State owns the trademark as of last year to the word the or the. In the work for this trademark, which was originally declined, the president of OSU said that they have $12.5 million in marketing every single year that is specific to the word the. Seems pretty incredible. Like I said, they didn't originally win the trademark. I think it's a tough word to get. But... <laughs> They pulled it off. <laughs> so go Bucks this morning. All right. The passage we're looking at this morning includes one of Jesus' fam most famous quotes, and it includes three very important these or thes. Hence the fun question segue there. <laughs> it is when he declares that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Has anyone else ever thought that the quote was the way, the truth, and the light? Or is it just me? because I've definitely messed that up. All right, there's a few of you, and we're going to be talking about the light as well this morning, so we'll see if I can get it right every single time. We'll see how it goes. All right, the quote doesn't come from a time when Jesus is teaching to the masses or even in a temple explaining the Jewish scriptures. Rather, our verses for this morning kick off what is known as Jesus' farewell discourse that ends, or happens towards the end of the Gospel of John. In John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He institutes what the other Gospel writers call the communion supper. And finally, he predicts that Peter, his closest friend, his closest follower out of all of them, is going to deny that he even knows Jesus three times before the rooster crows. It's immediately after this prediction that Jesus shares some final words with his closest friends, beginning in John chapter 14. Here he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? 
Don't you believe that I am in, am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray again. God, we give this time to you. May these words be of you, and as we proclaim that you are the way, the truth, and the life, may it be known to us in new ways this morning. God, you're so good to us, and we thank you for this opportunity to come before you to humble ourselves and give you all the glory and honor. We love you, Lord. Amen. On the night that Jesus would be betrayed and go through everything that he would face during the Passion narrative, Jesus tells his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. I find this fascinating for several different reasons. Jesus has every reason in the world to be the one who is troubled. And we'll get to that in a second. But here, he is clearly putting the needs of others above his own. I've had this kind of experience a few different times, and most prominently with my grandpa. But have you ever been in a hospital room with someone who dramatically needs a miraculous healing, and yet it is that person who is mostly helpless laying on a bed that's offering you snacks or a drink? or even a spot to sit on the bed. It's in those moments that you just have to chuckle at the irony of it all, because it's the person on the hospital bed who is offering hospitality to you. And that's kind of how I picture Jesus here. A second fascinating thought is that usually when Jesus makes this kind of commandment or gives advice like this, he has modeled it perfectly for his disciples. In this case, though, Jesus has let his heart be troubled. Last week, I mentioned that prior to teaching and feeding the 5,000, that the Mark in the Gospel of Mark says that Jesus was sick at heart over the crowd who was aimless. In the Palm Sunday story, Jesus goes outside Jerusalem and weeps over the city because of their lack of understanding. And only hours after telling his disciples to not let their hearts be troubled, Jesus is alone in the garden, sweating drops of blood. There's a clear distinction, though, between these feelings and what Jesus is truly talking about. In the Gospel of Mark, he is heartsick out of compassion. And a few hours later, he's fully in the knowledge of the excruciating pain that he's about to bear and the spiritual weight he's carrying on the cross. It's not this kind of troubled heart that Jesus is talking about. He continues his thought by saying, you believe in God, believe also in me. In this life, hearts are going to be troubled and broken. But Jesus is affirming the disciples' faith while encouraging them to not lose grip of their foundation when their faith faces troubled waters. Remember, remember, these words come immediately after predicting that Peter is going to betray him. Peter's soon coming failure is a clear illustration of being troubled off course. 
but this way, truth, life, farewell discourse is originally given to a people who are about to have their faith tested in critical ways. He continues on, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. As I studied for the sermon, I used several different resources from different theological backgrounds, but nearly every source cautioned that the phrase, my father's house, is not primarily a synonym for heaven. While I think it's natural for our minds to go there with this, instead it's meant to communicate an abiding with the Father. Throughout the Gospel of John, whether it's in the very first verses that establish that Jesus is God and has existed from the very beginning, whether it's the teaching of the vine and the branches or the prayer in the garden when Jesus prays for the church to be one as the Father and the Son are one, John is repeatedly stressing abiding, the abiding relationship between Jesus and the Father. The emphasis isn't that Jesus is building solid gold rooms full of treasures for each disciple in heaven. Rather, he's tr trying to say that he's an extending an invitation for all to have eternal residence in the divine relationship. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, they all prepared a place where we aren't left to deal with the problem of sin alone. Rather, he has claimed victory over that which breaks the relationship between God and humanity. This is amazing. This is what our faith is truly about. It's God reconciling all of creation back into a holy relationship. You are so deeply loved that God desires for you to abide in a relationship with him. Though in normal 12-disciple fashion, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father except through me. These are incredibly bold statements. Is this kind of teaching, this attitude, why the teachers of religious law seek to have Jesus killed? As we discussed on Easter, it's these kinds of claims that would simply be the mutterings of a fool with a martyr complex if it weren't for the resurrection. The amazing part of it all is that Jesus doesn't simply call a shot. He actually fully delivers on this promise. And it's hard to argue that Jesus isn't the life when he resurrects from a sealed tomb just four days after making this proclamation. This return from dead leads Paul to later write, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
John also says that Jesus' is life, because he brings this kind of love and life to the world, he says it in this way of, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. This light to all humankind is at the heart of what John is saying throughout his whole gospel. The truth, the one thing we can hold on to regardless of life circumstances or when our hearts are troubled, is that Jesus, our incarnate word, the Son of God, through him we can see and know God in a way that was never before possible. This word, this truth made flesh, he altered the relationship between God and humanity forever. We have all heard the mythical tales about a fountain of youth, human beings longing for never-ending life, and philosophers seeking after truth. It's been that way since humans could think. And over the course of human history, there's countless examples of us trying to find ultimate truth and eternal life. But what does it mean that Jesus is the life, the truth, and the way? Simply put, we believe that God is the source of all truth and life, and we learn who God is by knowing the Son. It's the knowledge, or better put, this relationship that sparked a revolution because a religious minority in the ancient Mediterranean world declared, this is who we are. We are grounded in the incarnation, in the word, the truth, and the life, taking on flesh to dwell among us, and he is the way to God. Did you know that before Christians were called Christians, we were first named followers of the way? I won't go into all of the history of those titles, but just because followers of the way isn't what we primarily call ourselves today, it doesn't mean that there's not truth in that name. The phrase the way communicates a journey, and we can all agree that the life of faith is a journey, right? There's ups and there's downs. There's Good Friday hopelessness and Easter Sunday celebrations. There's victories. There's missteps. There's a continued growth in grace. The Bible is full of these adventurous stories, and we are invited into that journey today. But I'm not going to pretend that the Christian journey is the only adventure out there. It's simply not true. You can follow the way of a multitude of religions nowadays. You can follow the way of consumerism, of nationalism, of the Jedi. There really are Jedi worship centers. I think Pandora from Avatar has that too. I mean, you can make anything a religion. There's so many adventures that you can take in this world. Some have more dragons than others. But Christians take a bold stance in our society that promotes relative truth. We can say people can be fully lost while being fully sincere. Not every faith or life motto says that. You can be completely genuine but still be wrong 
according to the Christian faith. We plant our feet on this position because we believe Jesus when he says that he is the way. No other way is going to lead to abiding with the Father. Now, some of you, whether it was vocal or in your heart, said amen to that. And honestly, I know that there are some of you that cringed at the audacity of that statement. Either way, I want you to stick with me for this next part. In my studying, I came across a long quote, and I'm going to go ahead and read it all, from the New Interpreter's Bible Commentary, because I really like how they phrased this two-sided coin of inclusive and exclusive. They write, Humanity's encounter with Jesus the Son makes possible a new experience of God as the Father. Yet the very clarity and decisiveness of the fourth evangelist's conviction here have turned these words into a weapon with which to bludgeon one's opponents into theological submission. These words are used as a litmus test for Christian faith in myriad conversations and debates within the contemporary church. They are taken by some as the rallying cry of Christian triumphalism, proof positive that Christians have the corner on God and that people of any and all faiths are condemned. They are seen by others as embarrassingly exclusionary and are narrow-minded, and they are pointed to as evidence of the problems inherent in asserting Christian faith in a pluralistic world. I'm not warning to shy away from Jesus being who he said he is. But to use words to bludgeon one's opponents into submission is simply missing the point of what Jesus is saying. First, remember the context of this claim. The farewell discourse is meant to be an affirmation of faith and an encouragement for these disciples. Turning encouragement into a weapon is simply not the point of what Jesus is trying to say here. Secondly, Jesus being the way like I said earlier, is a two-sided coin where he is drawing a line in the sand, which is going to include some and exclude others. But what is special about his way is that all are welcomed to it. Many of the problems Jesus faced with the Pharisees or that the followers of the way faced throughout the entire books of Acts, book of Acts were centered around Jesus extending a relationship to the Father outside of the Jewish inner circle. Jesus' message extended an invitation that's in reach of all of us Gentiles for all time. I saw a quote earlier this week from Rachel Held Evans, who passed away a few years ago, and she said the apostles remembered what many Christians tend to forget that what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. And this is good news. There is one way to the Father, but all are welcomed to it. That all has no exclusion clauses whatsoever. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. But how can someone find it if it's never genuinely showed to them? Instead of using exclusivity in our faith to scar others, what if we have the heart of Jesus who is heart sick and weeps over those who do not follow the way while we stand firm in our truth? For Jesus didn't just claim to be the way and then start abiding with the Father. We are called to live into the life, the truth, and the way now, which means leading others into truth and life. What I'm trying to say is that when Jesus says, I am the way, he's not saying that he's the password at the gates of heaven as if that's all that Jesus is good for. Rather, following the way means abiding in the Father now. It means participating in his mission to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those verses I quoted and are read by Jesus in Luke 4 come from the prophet Isaiah, And Isaiah wrote those down during Israel's exile in Babylon. The rest of his book speaks of confusion, a loss of identity, the trauma of captivity. And yet he's the prophet that Jesus quotes most and uses to introduce his mission. The way of Jesus walks through even humanity's lowest points of captivity to draw others back to God. All other ways out of our desperation are eventually going to lead to dead ends. We stand firm in that. But Jesus' radically exclusive claim is even more so radically inclusive because we are all invited into the life of that journey. I'm currently reading a book by a Japanese-American theologian named Makoto Fujimura. It's a fascinating book. It's called Silence and Beauty and was written in response to another Japanese book called Silence. They made a movie out of that one a few years ago. And in it, Fujimura addresses Jesus' words in an honest way. If you are or have struggled with today's topic, I want you to hear how Fujimura handles Jesus' claim to be the way. He said, I used to wrestle with the statement and with the forceful ways that the church asserted its assumed dominance on culture and its exclusive claims over all other religions. But over time, I came to realize that this exclusivity came out of the mouth of Jesus first and in the character of Jesus quite consistently. Religions come to us with sets of rules we must follow to please God. Jesus comes to us to dwell within our lives, not only to show us the way, but so we will experience, perhaps for the first time, unconditional love and grace. Religions call us to join and support the institution. Jesus calls us to a liberation of hearts and minds and invites us into a community of radical generosity, inclusion, and faithfulness. 
The Ten Commandments and the law of God are the result of what happens when we have Jesus live through us. St. Paul, a religious Pharisee who had tried to live perfectly within the law, tells us repeatedly in the epistle to the Romans that our efforts to obey the law turn into an enslavement and create a wretched condition of pride. Jesus' way can break those enslaving chains on you. And he invites you into the process of breaking those chains around you. He promised that we would do greater things in his name, that the Holy Spirit would come and empower us to do so. And if the way is our focus, then are we are welcome to start that abiding with the Father now. If you are not abiding in the Father, then this morning through the grace of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of the Son, I would like to invite you to know the Father in new ways. He is the God of light and life. He loves you deeply and has a place for you. It's a room of belonging, of forgiveness, and of mission as we join in on the way of Jesus. If we believe in Jesus and stay founded in him who is the way, the truth, and the life, then we'll abide in God forever. Would you stand and pray with me?